bring them back on Father's Day, and we will, and Martha will deliver them to uh, the Caring Pregnancy Center. It's their uh, main fundraiser uh, for the year, and also the fundraiser for Brenton Casey for the YWAM. If you've got old sneakers or athletic shoes with um, rubber soles or plastic soles, bring them on in and uh, recycle them. Don't put them in the landfill, but recycle them, and it'll make money for uh, Brenton to be able to go to the training for YWAM in Florida this fall. Uh, the youth camps, what Grace International Youth Camps will take place in the month of July. More information to come. Uh, Mary Martha meeting a week from tomorrow, <coughs> if I got it right. And then the fireworks are coming. A <coughs> couple of other inserts to take note of. On uh, June the 18th, on Saturday at uh, Victoria Freeman Park, there will be a community-wide celebration of Juneteenth. Um, and you're invited to be part of that as a potluck picnic. And uh, there's some, well, that starts at 1 p.m. in the afternoon. And I encourage you to be part of that um, on the June the 18th. The following day is Father's Day. And I'm inviting you to join us in between the two services for a Father's Day breakfast. Uh, it'll be a hearty breakfast. And if you've ever been to our fellowship breakfast, you know it's a hearty breakfast. And then bring dad, bring grandpa, bring your husband, bring your family. And uh, it's a good way to take dad to breakfast on Father's Day and it won't cost you anything. Just to be in the building, to be in church on Father's Day. So. Take note of any other announcements there, the right now, and the, the Faith Family app. So I thought about what title I should put on our message for today. I had several thoughts come to mind. One was different but the same. Or twins but not identical. Or why can't you be like me? But I chose to use the title we already used for three messages. This is what love looks like, part four. I chose that title because that is what Paul's admonitions beginning in chapter 12. First 11 chapters of Romans, he gives us a lot of incredible theology about salvation and what God did for us when Jesus became flesh and, and dwelt among us and gave his life that we might be born again. And then as a result of the fact that we've been born again, he said, I'll present your bodies a living sacrifice, which is your reasonable act of worship. And, and, and after that, then he begins to talk about what love looks like and, and how we should live. In chapter 12, we learned that love must be serving. That's its nature. It serves one another. Love must be serving. Then we also learned that love must be genuine. It should be sincere. It means without hypocrisy, without wax. It needs to be the real deal. It's, it's a, a decision of my mind that by my heart I'm going to do the best for whatever that other person needs in their life. After all, God is love. And if Jesus lives in us, our love needs to be genuine. Chapter 13, we learn that love must be submissive. It must be submissive. <clears throat> He talked about our attitude towards authorities that God had put in place. The government authorities, your boss, your husband. I can see now I'm on thin ice, aren't I? We also learned in chapter 13, let love be universal. Let love be universal, he said. We don't owe anyone anything except to love one another. Excuse me, I don't know what's going on, but. <clears throat> I haven't even started preaching, so it can't be a dry sermon yet. <laughs> Chapter 14, <coughs> excuse me, 
Love must be patient and tolerant of other people's convictions. Love must be patient and tolerant of other people's convictions. Now, I know when I use that word tolerant, some of you are going to wonder if I'm using it in the same sense that our culture is today in regards to all kinds of things that we should not be tolerant of. That's not what I'm talking about at all. Paul is writing regarding issues of belief that are non-essential to the status of my salvation. Regarding issues of belief that are non-essential to the status of my salvation. In the course of my lifetime, I have seen and heard of a whole lot of debatable matters passed off as requirements for being a Christian. In the 1950s, in churches such as this one, we heard a whole lot about the sin of drinking alcohol. My grandmother believed it was a sin to drink soda pop because the proverb says, don't drink it when it's moving itself around in the glass. Somewhere along the line, though, she drank orange pop, and she decided she could drink orange pop. She just couldn't drink all the rest because they see, see the fizz in them. But um, you don't smoke, you don't drink, you don't chew, don't go with girls who do. <laughs> Those were the kinds of things we heard in the 50s. Going to movies, dancing, that, that was taboo. I remember how guilty I felt when I went to the Billy Graham movie in the theater downtown. It wasn't the Columbia Theater, it was the, the one that's now the Stageworks. And went in to watch, I think it was Run Baby Run or one of those Billy Graham movies. And I was concerned that Jesus would come because all of my life I'd heard it preached. If you're in the movie house when Jesus comes, you probably won't go to heaven because of all the things that take place. I have no idea whatever took place there, but somebody saw something somewhere along the line and said, you can't go to movies anymore. I heard preachers talk about the sin of wearing lipstick and makeup or playing cards with a deck of cards that has pictures that's associated with devil worship. I heard about a church pot, <clears throat> it was not here. But I heard about a church potluck once where a new family had come into the church and it was their first potluck and, and the wife made this beautiful red jello salad like Audrey makes and she brought it in and gave it to whoever was in charge of putting stuff on the table and they went and sat down and, and they noticed that as the meal progressed that her salad did not make the buffet table. And so she went in the back room with her to see what was going on, and she got there just in time to see some lady getting ready to scrape it off into the garbage disposal. She said, what's the deal? She said, in this church, you use real whipped cream. You don't use Cool Whip. And then she turned on the garbage disposal, and down it went. The rest of the story is that the church soon went down the drain. I tell you that crazy story because it highlights the necessity of what Paul is going to address here in chapter 14 and chapter 15. This message is supposed to cover 14 through 15, 14, but we're not going to do all those verses because, you know, it'll take me too long to do that. But here, Jesus' plan for his church is a spirit of unity. Jesus' plan for the church is a spirit of unity of unity. In John 17, this is the great high priestly prayer of Jesus. This is the true Lord's prayer. As he has gone from the upper room and he's come to the edge of the garden Gethsemane, he stands and he prays in the earshot of the 11 disciples who are with him. He said, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. 
the unity of the church, and not just, this, but the church across the world, the whole church, the unity, the spirit of unity, is a declaration of the fact that Jesus Christ is who he said he was, and he did what he said he was going to do. Psalms 133, verse 1, the psalmist wrote, Behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. And then the, verse, the third verse says, It's like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. The Lord has commanded life where there's unity among the brethren. Unity is God's plan for the church, but that does not mean that we are all exactly the same. In our unity, there is also diversity. In our unity, there's also diversity. That's one of the characteristics of a church, our diversity, our differences, are all working together in the spirit of unity. Remember in 1 Corinthians 12, Paul wrote in the 17th verse, If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each of them as he chose. If you read the rest of that context, he said, the hand can't say to the foot, I don't need you, and so on. All the different parts working together, coexisting in unity. As we go into Romans chapter 14 and 15, the next couple of messages, God is very aware of our human tendencies to judge things that we should not judge. He's aware of our tendencies for self-righteousness and our ability to criticize others to make ourselves look better. So as Paul is talking about walking in love, we come to this section where he tells us these things. I want to read the first 12 verses of chapter 14. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. For God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day as better than the other, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself, none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then... Whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God, for it is written, as I live, says the Lord. Every knee shall bow to me, every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Let me see if I can give you some background to what Paul is referring to, who he's referring to when he talks about the weak and the strong in faith, and why the strong should welcome or accept those who are weaker. By the time that Paul is writing this letter to the church in Rome, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ has become, in fact, the church was birthed, and today is the birthday of the birth of the church. Today is what's called Pentecost Sunday, 50 days after Easter. And uh, or 49 and 50 days, those, it comes to Pentecost, means 50. And uh, on the day of Pentecost, you remember, uh, 3,000 people heard the Apostle Peter explained why there was a group of people that started out to be 120 of them praying in a room upstairs. They're now on the streets, and they are praising God in languages that they don't know themselves, 
But there's people from different nations, Jews who have been dispersed and come back for the Passover time, and they're still in Jerusalem. They have not returned to their countries. And they hear them praising God in their tongue, but these people, and, and they say, are these people drunk? And he said, no, no, they're not drunk. This is that which the prophet Joel prophesied, that in the last days, God said, I will pour my spirit upon all flesh. Young people, young, old people, on all flesh. He said, this is that. And then, then he goes on to talk about uh, the fact that Jesus Christ was sent from God. He was God. He came and, and, and we crucified him, but he rose again. And now those who put their faith in Jesus Christ, he said, if you repent of your sin and baptize for your, for your sins, you will be saved and you receive the same gifts. If you've read the first five books of the Bible, you have read where God gave some specific instructions as to which animals were protein that they could enjoy and which animals and creatures were unclean. There was also some specific instructions on how you were to slaughter the clean animals before you consumed them. And over the course of time, those instructions were further defined by the leaders of the Jewish people. And the Jews who ate meat were to only eat meat that had been deemed kosher. I don't want you to see if you're listening. Kosher. And you can go to the grocery store and you see places where the meat has, says it, it's kosher. Over the centuries, as the Jews lived in the same cities with the Gentiles and people who worshipped idols, there came to be a group of Jews who, in order to not be duped into eating meat that was not kosher, they decided the best way to please God was to be vegetarians. And part of that reason, as I understood, is because some of those places of pagan worship where there was an animal that was going to be offered to an idol, butcher shops were set up right next to it so that it was convenient for the worshiper to get prime meat to, and to offer, but not only to offer the meat, but to take, get some prime meat to take home. So in the days of the Maccabees, as I understand it, to keep from being polluted by idolatry, because th their thing was is. If any of this meat has been offered to an idol, if, if we eat this meat, we're worshiping an idol. That was their thinking. So during the time of the Maccabees, there, there came a whole group of Jews who said, we're going to be vegetarians, so we don't go there. Now I realize that today some people read the story of Daniel, where Daniel is in Babylon, and he'd been taken captive, and they want him to eat the king's food. And he said, we're not going to eat the king's rich food. Just give us fruits or give us vegetables and water. And people have concluded from that one passage of Scripture that God intended for us to be vegetarians. And if that's the way you feel, God bless you. But the Scripture doesn't say that we should be vegetarians. What could happen is we have the church of the carnivores and the church of the vegetarians. That's what Paul's trying to get away from. Um... There are places in the New Testament that give us freedom to eat, even the things that God said were unclean in the Old Testament. For example, Jesus, in Mark chapter 7, verse 18 and 19, he's speaking to a group of people. He said to them, Then and are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from the outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart but his stomach and is expelled? And then it says, thus he declared all foods clean. In Acts chapter 10, Peter is in an upper room waiting for his lunch to be prepared downstairs by the gracious people who are hosting him. And suddenly he goes into a trance and he sees a vision. The sheet comes down from heaven, held on the four corners by unseen powers. And when he looks in the sheet, there's every kind of animal and creature and reptile and bird that all were unclean, and, and the voice from heaven says, get up and eat. And Peter says, no way. I've never eaten anything unclean. I'm not touching any of that. Three times, the, it comes down, rise and eat. 
in the way, rise and eat. And God used that vision for two purposes. One, he said, there's a Gentile who's coming. I want you to go to his house and preach the gospel. Jews didn't think Gentiles were going to go to heaven. They thought they were on the outside. The other thing is, God said, don't call anything unclean that I have made. And we're given privilege to eat shrimp, crab, pork, hallelujah. Everything's better with bacon. Peter said, I've only eaten kosher. God said, it's going to be okay. In, in Rome in 52 AD, the emperor Claudius had dispelled all the Jews from Rome. They kicked them all out. He didn't want any of them there. And of course, he only, you know, a few years later, he's gone. And, and so the Jews came back. And what happened, what scholars believe happened at the church in Rome during that period of time is when all the Jews left, all these people who had this, been raised in Judaism, when they left, then the Gentiles were kind of in charge of the church. And when the Jews came back, they were really upset because all these Gentiles were eating all this meat and, and doing all of these things that their Old Testament law said you can't do. You see, there was a whole bunch of Jews who became Christians, faith in Jesus, but they thought they still had to keep all the regulations of Moses' law in order to really attain the fullness of their salvation. They didn't understand that they were saved by, totally by grace and, and grace alone. Scenario would have looked something like this. Francesco, good Italian brother, just returning from the corner store with a, an armload of, of meat when he meets Brother Boaz, a good Jewish brother in the Lord. Boaz cheerfully greets Francesco. Grace and peace to you, my friend. What do you have there? Oh, we're having a barbecue tonight. So I got some meat. They got great prices right now on steaks and T-bones and rib steak. And, and they really have a great price on pork. Why don't you bring the wife and the kids and, and join us? And, and it'll be really, be, there'll be plenty and it'll be a great time. Boaz puts on a grieved expression, shaking his head, walks away without speaking. Francesco is taken back, then realizes what's going on. He's just been judged for eating meat, and he's not happy about it. With all of that background, let's get some of the definitions here. Paul said, he talks about the weak in faith. Who does he mean when he's talking about the weak in faith? He's talking about the Jewish and Gentile believers who continue to live under Jewish regulations regarding food and holy days. Believers who continue to live under Jewish regulations regarding food and holy days. It was their contention to do anything less would be unholy. To do anything less would be sin. For them, the people eating meat that could not be verified kosher, those people cannot possibly be born again. They're still heathens. The strong in faith... That's the Gentile and Jew alike who understood the freedom to eat what they wanted and they acknowledged every day as a day that God had given to them. Every day as a holy day. It's a bit of a paradox in the fact that the Jewish law keepers were probably a whole lot more fervent about their practice of what they believed in terms of energy expended. They may have looked more committed but they were committed to their efforts rather than to the gospel of Jesus Christ. There was something going on inside them said, I need Jesus, but I also need to do all of these things, abstain from eating wrong food, keeping the special Sabbath day. So let's go back to verse 1 and let's unpack the next, these 12 verses. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him but not the quarrel over opinions. Welcome him. My understanding, as I read the scholars in the original language, this is not a suggestion. This is in the imperative form. 
It's a command. A command to the stronger in faith, fully accept the weaker in faith. Fully accept the weaker in faith. The word welcome in the ESV is, is accept in the NIV, and, and both words are a definition of the original Greek word, which means to accept or receive into one's society, home, or circle of influence. Accept them. Increase your circle of love and let them in. Let them in. Even though they believe something different than what you believe about what they eat or what days we need to acknowledge as spiritual holidays. He says, accept them without an agenda to change them. Accept them without an agenda to change them. Not to quarrel over opinions. The New English Bible says, without attempting to settle doubtful points. There are some issues that do not merit an argument. There are a lot of issues that people create within the confines of, of church life that have really nothing to do with my salvation, making heaven or not. That does not mean we don't have a tendency, a uh, propensity to have a strong opinion. What it does mean, though, is this. It's more important to love our family, our church family, more than we love our opinion. More important to love our family more than we love our opinion. John Maxwell said a a husband who loves his opinion more than his wife is going to lose his wife. Love your family more than your opinion. In Dale Carnegie's book, How to Win Friends and Influence People, part three of the book is how to win people over to your way of thinking. Now you all want to read that, right? That's what the title is. The first chapter in that third part is titled, You Can't Win an Argument. You can't win an argument. And... Carnegie confesses he was a prolific arguer. When he went to college, he studied debate and argumentation. He studied how to argue with people. He later taught debate and how to argue with people in New York. But as life went on, he observed by making some mistakes, and observing other people, he came to this conclusion, you never win an argument. Because if you lose, you've lost. But if you've made your point and you think you've won the argument, you've lost as well. Because if you've succeeded in proving your point, all you have done is made that other person feel inferior, you've wounded their pride, And instead of making a friend, you've probably made a lifelong somebody who's going to avoid you, if not an enemy. And while I'm at it, and I might say this again later, but I hope you realize you do not have the power to change anyone. You do not have the power to change anyone. I warn every couple who come to me for pre-marriage counseling, if you think you're going to change this person, you are you better not get married because it's not going to happen. The only person who can change us is God, and he can't change us until we say, God, here I am, you're the potter and I'm the clay. Mold me and make me. He said to the stronger, accept the weaker. This acceptance is to be mutual. The weaker to accept the stronger. The weaker to accept the strong. Verse 2 says this, one person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. For God has welcomed him. Paul said, you people who eat meat do not look down on, do not put down on those people who do not eat meat. The 
Literal translation is, do not count them as nothing. Do not treat them with disdain. To the vegetarians, the command is, do not judge those who have the liberty to eat bacon. Do not judge those who can enjoy a great hamburger or filet mignon with shrimp on the side. (laughs) The weak are very inclined to be judgmental. The weak have a tendency to pigeonhole other people according to their checklist. And I've heard it because I've been in the church for a few days. That man cannot be a good Christian because he, in that case, it was, he eats meat. Or he doesn't observe the Jewish Sabbath days. Or because he drinks beer. Because he smokes cigarettes. Or because whatever. There are still people today who think if you eat meat, you can't be part of the kingdom of God. There are some who believe if you don't go to worship on Saturday that you are profaning the Sabbath day and you're not going to go to heaven. You've not saved yet. Within the church, there's a, a whole bunch of issues where opinions vary greatly. As I've already talked about drinking and smoking, there's differences of opinion. It used to be anything south of the Mason-Dixon line that was okay in their churches to smoke. Anything above that, it was not okay to smoke. Now it's a whole different game. And uh, There was difference of opinion on the use of cosmetics or jewelry. There was difference of opinion that one should wear to go to church. When I was growing up, you were expected to wear your Sunday best. Suits and ties was the thing for all the men. I don't see one among us including me. Um, there's, there's all kinds of different opinions about some, what people would term theological things that really don't matter. Eschatology. That's your theology of end times. What's going to happen when it's all over? What is Revelation all about? And, and there's four major thoughts on, and most people don't even know that there's more than one, and in that one there's five or six thoughts, but there's the historicist who believe that Revelation surveys the, the, the history of the church from the beginning of the church until the end of time. There's the preterists who believe Revelation was all fulfilled by A.D. 70. There's the, the futurists who believe everything is going to take place in Revelation in the future. All of it's in the future. There's the idealist who believes that Revelation uh, is a series of principles that will take place over and over and over and over again in, in, in culture and society until the final end. It doesn't matter whether you believe in a millennium or don't believe in a millennium, a tribulation or no tribulation. What Jesus told you to believe is this. He's coming again and be ready. He's coming again and be ready. But over the centuries, churches have split over issues because of their strong differences of opinions and their inability to accept somebody else who has an opinion that might be different. There are people who let me know they cannot fellowship in this church and they've left this church because I do not preach from the King James Bible. For some reason, they believe that the King James Bible was the original Bible. The Bible was not written in English until 1611. And the people who say you should only read the King James Bible are not really reading the King James Bible. They're reading the revised King James Bible because if you read the original one, and I have a copy in my office, you'd have a hard time understanding it because, number one, they didn't spell the words the same, they don't use the same words, and it's, it's like a foreign language. There are some things in the Bible which are not debatable. There are some things that we say these are absolute truths and we must hold them. Jesus is the Son of God. He was born of a virgin. He died on the cross and rose again on Easter Sunday morning. And the only way to get to heaven is through Jesus Christ, faith in Jesus Christ. Those are absolute things. 
There's some other things that are absolute. And I won't go into all of them, but there's some absolute. Did you know that it's absolute that being drunk is a sin? And the scripture says there won't be any drunks in heaven. It's absolutely wrong to commit adultery or fornication. It's absolutely wrong to steal or lie. There are things in the scripture that are absolutely clear. God said these are sin. And we are exhorted to, we're told to, to rebuke and reprove and exhort one another when we see somebody caught up in a sin that's going to lead to death. But issues that are not clearly spelled out, we accept one another, we allow God and His Word to facilitate spiritual growth and understanding in those individuals. The acceptance is to be mutual because God receives us all. God receives us all. Let the one who eats despise, let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. God has welcomed him. God accepts both meat eaters, vegetarians. He loves them both. They've both experienced the amazing grace that we sang about. They have both become the children of God. Who are we to despise or put down someone that Jesus Christ accepts? That's what Paul is saying. You're all familiar with the golden rule? Do unto others as you'd have them do unto you. What Paul is saying here is we need to treat others the way that God treats them. We need to treat others the way that God treats them. This goes back to what we learned last week from chapter 13. Oh, no one anything except to love them. To love them with the love of Christ. The acceptance to be mutual, is, is to be mutual because that person is not my servant. That person is not my servant. Verse 4 says, Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. In matters that are non-essential to salvation, it's not my responsibility to change someone. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant or another? Now, I suppose that in a sense, the city employees are supposed to be our servants. But what do you suppose the outcome would be if tomorrow morning I went around the city and whenever, wherever I found a city crew working, I got out of my car and I gave them orders for the next job that they needed to do today and how to do it. Because of cell phones and two-way radios, I'm sure it would not be very long until there would be an official city car run me down, find me, not run me over, but find me, and ask me, what in the world are you up to? They would let me know that I had not been hired to oversee their department. Those employees answer to that manager and not me. Paul said, that weak brother, that strong brother, they're not your servant. They're the Lord's servant. The Lord will sustain them. The Lord will sustain them. And he said, for the Lord is able to make him stand. We could read into this statement, the Lord is going to grow them up however they need to be grown up as they submit themselves to him. The Lord is going to open their understanding. The Lord is going to fill them with his love and his presence. The Lord will sustain them. He will transform them. It, 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 took, it goes to what Paul said in Philippians chapter 1, I think it's verse 6. He who began a good work in you is able to complete it. He's the author and the finisher of our faith in Rome, Hebrews chapter 12. We accept one another because, let us see, God reads our hearts and sees what we do not see. God reads our hearts and sees what we do not see. Verse 5 said, One person esteems one day is better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. Verse 6 says, Go ahead and click 
The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself, none of us dies to himself. Where we live, we live to the Lord. If we die, we die to the Lord. So then whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. When Paul speaks here about days, he's most likely speaking about the special Jewish festival days that were additional Sabbaths that were put into their week. Besides the Saturday Sabbath, when there was a festival day, it was also called a Sabbath. There were Jewish fasting days. There were several of those days God told them, you need to remember this day every year in a special way. They were things that remember what God had done in the past, but they all looked forward to the coming of the Messiah. Jesus was the fulfillment of all those shadows. The Messiah, the anointed one. Paul says to the folks on both sides of the issue, the weak and the strong, both are acting in a way that they intend to bring honor to the Lord. And God can see that. Remember what God told the prophet Samuel when he went to anoint the second king. God looks on the heart. Man looks on the outward. But God sees the heart. God sees things we cannot. So here's the admonition for us today. The person who worships with us and sees things differently than you do is, is probably just as intent on being real before God and as true to the Lord as you are. He or she just has a, at this moment, a different understanding, but their sincerity as worship is just as real. Verse 5 said, each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. In other words, my actions should be based on something deeper than traditions or personal preferences. There needs to be something in Scripture that brings this, that backs up my position of conviction. And it may be a conviction that changes with more understanding of the Word. But wherever you are, be fully convinced in your own mind, he said. Make sure that you're about bringing honor to the Lord. The Lord looks on the hearts. Part of what Paul says when he speaks of one esteeming days above others and other persons seeing them all the same, the one man eating, the other not, people opposing views are non-essential. Both can be right with God. Both can be right with God. And I know that doesn't compute with our thinking, but in non-essentials, there's a lot of latitude. Two of the most famous preachers during the Victorian period of England were Charles Spurgeon and Joseph Parker, two, two great preachers, theologians, pastors of great churches. Early on in their ministry, they would often fellowship together. They would even exchange pulpits. And when I say exchange pulpits, they would go preach at each other's church. Until one day, Charles Spurgeon heard that Joseph Parker had gone to the theater. And he questioned in the local newspaper whether Parker was spiritual at all because he went to the theater. The interesting thing is Spurgeon smoked cigars, a practice that many believers condemned. One day someone asked Spurgeon about his cigars and he replied, I don't smoke in excess. And he said, what do you mean by excess? And he waggishly answered, no more than two at a time. <laughs> Who was right, Parker or Spurgeon? I don't know if either one of them was right, but I do know this. God used both of them to not only touch the generation that they live in, but those are two of the preachers that preachers today read on an ongoing basis for inspiration and education in the Word of God. Differences of opinion on non-essentials, but still servants of the living God. Letter D, Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. None of us lives to himself None of us dies to himself. 
If we live, we live to the Lord. If we die, we die to the Lord. So then whether you live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. Now, I know it's an American thing to believe my life is my own. My body's my own. I'm my own person. I have the right to do whatever I want, however I want, wherever I want. But that's really not what the Bible teaches. Jesus died to redeem us from the wages of sin. To redeem us, that means to buy us from death. The Bible said you are not your own. You've been bought with a price, the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Whether we live or die, Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. Letter E, Christ alone has the right to judge. Christ alone has the right to judge. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, every tongue shall confess to God. That's a quote from Isaiah chapter 45. Verse 12 says, So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Notice he uses the word brother. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Why do you despise your brother? I don't think that's an accident. He uses that word to emphasize the unity that should be between the one whom he calls weak and the one he calls strong. He reminds us that one day each and every one of us will stand before the judgment seat of God. Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he's done in the body, whether good or evil. In the first letter of the Corinthians, he said in the third chapter, 13th verse, 15th verse, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire. The fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he'll receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Paul wants us to understand that it's only Christ, the one who died for us, the one who prays for us. He's the only one who has the right to judge us. Each of us will give an account, verse 12 said, of himself, not others. We prefer to give an account for somebody else. Do you see what? But we'll stand before God and give an account. Now there's a whole lot of things about the judgment seat of Christ that I don't understand. But I do know this, each one of us will stand there. And because that's true, it ought to help squelch our tendency to be judgmental in our attitudes for people who are not like us, who do not worship the way we worship. Because we will all stand before God and give an account for how we lived. It ought to cause us to submit to the Holy Spirit on a daily basis. Because what's tried by fire, the only thing that's going to last is what was done for Christ. The only thing that will last is what was done for Christ. You say, what kinds of things are that? Well, Jesus in Matthew 25 said... There's going to be a division, the sheep on the right and the goats on the left. And he's going to say to both groups something to the effect, when I was hungry, you fed me. When I was naked, you clothed me. When I was thirsty, you gave me to drink. When did we see you do this? When you did it to the least of these, my brother. Will you live out the love of Jesus Christ? We are doing it to Christ, for Christ. It's my firm conviction 
that the first question that will be asked at the first stage of judgment standing before God will be this question, eternity, eternity. Where will you spend eternity and what will you do with Jesus Christ? The only way to get into heaven is to receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Jesus told Nicodemus in John chapter 3, unless a man is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. To be born again, you must confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord and that God raised him from the dead. And you say, Jesus, Revelation 3, there's this picture of Jesus. He said, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man will open the door, I will come in and sup with him. Have you surrendered your heart to Jesus Christ and made him the Lord of your life? If not, there's no nothing like the present. There is a scripture that says, Today is the day of salvation. This is a great moment, the closing moments of the service to say, Jesus, I need you. I want you. I don't know everything about you, but I know I need you. And I want you to come into my heart and my life. <coughs> For those who have embraced Jesus Christ, you understand he's Lord. Let me summarize our message thus far in the words of a guy named Ruperteris Maldinius. In essentials, we have unity. In the essentials, we have unity. Jesus is the Son of God. He's born of a virgin. He died on the cross for our sins. He rose again on Easter Sunday morning, and He's coming back again. We have unity. In the non-essentials, we have liberty. Eat meat. Vegetarian. Do what you're convinced in your heart you need to do. In all things, in all things, Charity. Incredible word for love. In all things, we have love one for another. So, Lord, as we have come to the conclusion of our hour and those moments together, I want to thank you for your grace and your love to each and every one of us. Lord, that you accept us just as we are. And you love us enough to transform us to be more like you on an ongoing basis. Lord, sometimes we have the tendency to become very self-righteous and judgmental as we look at others around us, as we try to pull ourselves up by putting them down. But Lord, forgive us of those sins. Lord, may we, may we have a heart that says, Lord, make us one. Bind us together in your power. Bind us together in your love. Lord, I pray for the, the individuals this morning that you called here for the express purpose for them to make you the Lord of their life. To say, Jesus, I need you. Come into my heart. Come into my life. Help me to know you. Help me to love you. Give me the assurance that I have a place in heaven prepared for me because I have accepted Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. Thank you that you always hear that prayer. I want to sing one more prayer as a church, an old song.